Hello and welcome to The Course. I'm your host today, Lee, and I'm speaking with Associate Professor of Anthropology and of the Social Sciences in the college, Constantine Nikasis from the Department of Anthropology. Professor Nikasis is a linguistic anthropologist with interests in language and culture, semiotics, film theory, mass media, brands, and youth culture. His regional focus is Tamil Nadu, India. Professor Nikasis is here to talk to us about his career path and how he became a University of Chicago professor. Welcome to the course, Professor Kostas Nikasis. It is great to have you with us today. Thank you for having me. So, Kostas, can you give me a general overview of your career path? And let's begin in your undergraduate years, all the way up to becoming a professor at the University of Chicago. I studied at the University of Pennsylvania, and I began in 1997 as a freshman. And I grew up in Maryland, so it was, it was kind of close by to where, uh, where I was. And I started off not really knowing exactly what I wanted to study. And I remember my mother saying, um, you know, you should do some anthropology. I think you'd be interested in that. And I, those were the days where there was not, you know, we had just started getting emails, but all the courses were in a, in a big book. And so I remember sitting down and going through the big book and kind of just looking at the names of all the courses. And my mother and also my brother, who had studied some classical archaeology, suggested that I might like to do anthropology, and specifically physical anthropology, actually, since I had some interest in biology in high school. And um, I took some classes and I enjoyed it. And I just kept taking more classes. And then I eventually took a class with um, a professor named Gregory Urban. And um, it was Introduction to Culture Anthropology. And in that class, he introduced um, what's called semiotics, so the study of signs and communication, which is a big topic within one of the subfields of anthropology, linguistic anthropology. And I remember being really kind of intrigued by it. And the next time I saw that there was a class being offered in linguistic anthropology, you know, people focusing on questions of language and communication and the like, I took it and it just totally blew my mind. And that course was actually a course called Language, Thought, and Reality, um, which used to be taught by a professor named John Lucy, who was a, a PhD from the University of Chicago. I then took a class with Asif Aga because he was the, the main linguistic anthropologist in that department at the time. And whatever was left of my mind was further blown by um, taking classes with Asif. After that, I just took every class I possibly could. And most of them were graduate courses. So I was an undergraduate sitting in all these graduate courses just because they were the ones that were being offered. I don't know. It just really energized my thinking. It really opened my mind to all sorts of ideas about language and communication and the diversity of ways that people communicate and the complexity of it, the kind of the beautiful and fascinating complexity of the problem of communication, but set within a kind of an anthropological framework of thinking again about how varied it is that people across the world communicate with each other, make social relations, coordinate themselves, and the like. And so I was doing a lot of anthropology, uh, both physical anthropology and a lot of linguistic anthropology. And at the same time, I, I wasn't really sure that I wanted to be an academic or an anthropologist per se. I, I had never even heard of anthropology as a high school student. It's not something that was offered at my high school. And so I was also doing psychology, actually. I had a a double major in psychology and anthropology. And, and specifically, I was interested in psycholinguistics and developmental aspects of language acquisition. And so I did a double DA, did two theses, one with Asif Aga, 
and one under Lila Gleitman, but really working with her student, Jesse Snedeker, and was trying to think across both of those fields. And when I was a senior, I remember Jesse Snedeker, who was my advisor in psychology, she said, you know, you really should go to grad school. I think you're really suited to it. I didn't know exactly what that meant at the time, but I thought, okay, you know, I could. Why not? I really enjoyed studying and I was fine as a student, but I didn't work particularly hard in high school. And when I got to college, I didn't have particularly good study habits. I didn't do that well. I didn't do terribly. I wasn't like straight A student in any, in any way. But when I found my kind of my groove, when I figured out what I'd had to do in order to kind of study better and all that, but also when I found subjects that really turned a light bulb on in my mind, that's all I wanted to do was take as many classes as possible. At some point, I think I was taking six classes as an undergraduate. Some of them were graduate courses and I just wanted to lap it all up. And so the idea of being able to do more of that was really appealing to me. But I didn't know whether I wanted to do psychology or anthropology at the time. I fell into anthropology and I fell into it because I was really energized by the ideas, but also by some of the the people who were my mentors. And so I decided to do an anthropology PhD and I applied to a bunch of schools, one of which was actually the University of Chicago. And at the last minute, my undergraduate advisor, Asif Aga, said, you know, why aren't you also applying to Penn for your PhD? And I thought, and I said to him, I didn't think, you know, that that was something that people did. They didn't stay on at the same institutions. And he said, you know, normally they don't, but maybe you should apply anyway. So it turned out I actually got into Chicago and I got into Penn and also UCLA. I decided to stay at Penn largely because I thought I would have a lot of flexibility in terms of taking other classes because I'd taken all these classes in anthropology already, which was true. I took a lot of classes in linguistics when I was a graduate student there. And I pursued linguistic anthropology and eventually I I ended up focusing on working on questions of mass media and semiotic questions around mass media in South India and Tamil Nadu was the field site I ended up working in. And did my degree from 2001 to 2010. I graduated and was just ready to be done. And I applied for some jobs. I didn't really land very much except for a visiting associate professor position at the University of New Hampshire. And then very late in the job season, there was an ad for a postdoc at Chicago, someone working on media, a Mellon postdoc. And so I applied for it. I must have done something great in a past life. And they selected me to come as the postdoc, this two-year postdoc. One of the persons I interviewed again with was with Michael Silverstein. So in a kind of a funny way, uh, uh, by staying at Penn, it allowed me to actually come to Chicago as a, as a faculty member. Um, and I did a postdoc for two years and there happened to be a job up in anthropology. And I applied for that at the encouragement of the department chair at the time, Judith Farquhar. And again, I was really lucky or something went right. The stars aligned and I got that job. And so I've been working here ever since I came in 2010 as a postdoc and started as an assistant professor in 2012. So tell me about where you grew up, Costas, and what you wanted to be when you were a kid. I grew up in Gaithersburg, Maryland, which is a suburb of Washington, D.C. My mother grew up in the Philippines and then around seven or eight moved. They went through Paraguay and then eventually they landed up in Washington, D.C. And so she grew up in that area. And had met my father, who's Greek, and was living in France at the time. And they met in France. And eventually, they decided to settle in the Maryland area again. And my father worked for the National Institute of Standards and Technologies, also used to be called the National Bureau of Standards, as a computer scientist and as a mathematician. 
my mother had an MA in linguistics, which I, I suppose must have influenced me somehow, but I don't, I can't recall some kind of very direct way. My mother was a, was a teacher and, you know, our household was, for me, it was a place with lots of different languages. The sense that my family and where we were from was not here in Gaithersburg, though, of course, I wouldn't identify as anything but American, but my parents were both immigrants. So I was first generation and there was lots of, in my household, lots of arguing as a pastime for fun at the dinner table, lots of wordplay and punning, lots of discussion of things like etymologies and different kinds of development of language. It's hard for me to think that about like, how is it that I got led to becoming an academic? But in retrospect, those are things that carry over into being an academic as well. The kind of the joy in, in having an opportunity to be creative in your writing, in your speaking, in your teaching, in your thinking, and being engaged in a dialogue with a community of peers, colleagues, students in the university, outside of the university. And as a kid, you know, we traveled to, to Greece almost every summer. And uh, I can't help but think that the kind of exposure to cultural difference, both at home, but also through traveling was something that opened up my horizons to think about things, to think that it could be possible for me, for example, to have a career where being based on the life of a researcher who works in a place that's not where they live or grew up. And for me, that was, that's India, working in South India. So tell me a little bit about your work there and also some of the words that you've used so far, like linguistics, that might not be, you know, understandable to someone who's, say, you know, 14, 15, or even an adult who has no familiarity with that term. So tell me about your research and also specifically your work in India. Working in India, like anthropology, was something I kind of fell into. And a friend of mine in graduate school was going to be traveling in India. And she decided to let me kind of tag along. And I went with her. And it was just another kind of eye-opening experience, you know, traveling to some place where you don't know the language, you don't know the culture. And in India, of course, it's not that there's one language and one culture, but there are thousands, thousands of different languages. The exposure to the, the wide variety of human experience is something that's really humbling. And it's something that's for me, was really exciting. And thinking about, well, how would I come to understand all this stuff that I don't understand? I think, you know, that's like the kernel of a lot of people's, I don't know how you'd say it exactly, but maybe emotional or intellectual response to education. It's a process of transformation by trying to challenge yourself to understand things that you, did, you maybe couldn't understand before. And so for me, traveling to India was that kind of experience. And when I came back, like I said before, I was interested in anthropology, the study of kind of of human experience, human diversity. And the kind of anthropology that I was really attracted to was the, the questions in anthropology where people were focusing on issues of communication, meaning. And, and one of the primary ways in which that has been studied is through the focus on language. So linguistics is the formal discipline for the study of language. But within anthropology, American anthropology, there's always been a subfield known as linguistic anthropology, which we could define in lots of ways. One maybe easy shorthand way is the focus on an anthropological study of language. So looking at how language is part of, of cultural activities of various kinds. And in working in South India, I was interested in questions of meaning making more generally. And that included 
issues around language, but also issues around mass media. So I ended up doing a lot of work and I continue to work on, for example, the film industry of South India, which is made in the, in specifically in the state of Tamil Nadu. Just, it's an amazingly fascinating place. And the cinema industry itself was amazingly fascinating to me. And I ended up doing a lot of work on media in South India. So in many ways, you know, my research, it comes out of an experience of really being interested in trying to understand cultural diversity and the wide variety of experiences that exist out there, but by specifically focusing on this region in South India that has its own kind of interesting history with regards to language politics, but also with regards to the cinema. And I approached what I've tried to do in my work specifically, let's say on film, but on any number of media, is to ask the question of how is it that the anthropological advances in the study of language can be used and expanded upon and generalized to thinking about all sorts of cultural modalities of expression and communication, in this case, film. Kind of the wider scope of my work is really focused on those kinds of issues. So not so much thinking about language in cinema, but thinking about what are the processes through which meaning is made in and by cinema, for example. And as I mentioned before, you know, one of the um, ways in which that's been described as a field is the field of semiotics. So the study of signs and meaning making through communication which includes language, but includes lots of other things too. So Costas, you sound like you're very passionate about the work that you do and passionate about learning about your field. But I also know that pursuing academia as a career, pursuing a PhD, which is a prerequisite for that, are challenging processes. So who did you rely on for support throughout your career path? It's a great, great point that, you know, when you do a PhD, you're not the only one doing it. And by that, I mean, you know, there's all sorts of a support system. For me, I think at the beginning, of course, people like Asifaga was a great supporter of mine, a mentor. And there were other people, Greg Urban. But my parents, I would say, I remember saying to my father, I want to do a PhD. And just to give you a little background, you know, he was at, at the time when he was growing up in Greece, the best kind of profession every parent wanted their kid to do was maybe doctor, lawyer, but especially engineer. He started as an engineer and um, he just didn't, it didn't click with him. And I think he was bored intellectually. So he went and did what he wanted to do, which was to do a, a P, a mathematics, which was not considered a very good career prospect. It turned out to be fine, actually, for him. And keeping that in your mind as a kind of context, you know, I said, I want to do a PhD in anthropology. And I remember him saying, do you want to do that? You know, it's, a, it's hard and there may not be a job on the other end of it necessarily. And if you, even if you get a job, the pay is not going to be very good. And I said, no, no, this is what I'm interested to do. And then after that, we never, ever had a conversation about it. And they were only ever supportive, supportive financially, emotionally. My parents would sometimes read things I wrote, give me feedback, would always talk about my work. My parents came to my dissertation defense and I think it's I don't it's kind of funny that he asked me that because he picked a career that he knew was not the one that was going to make him money and make him rich, make him prestigious. But it was the one that that satisfied his own thirst for creativity and thinking. And that was also true about the job he took. He never worked in the private sector or worked for the government because it gave him the space to work on projects that he wanted to work on. And I think he knew what the cost of that was, not that he suffered for it, but he knew that you give up things to do, to take this kind of career path. The other person I should mention too, 
in my career is my brother, my older brother, who also became an academic. I would ask him for everything. For my first, you know, he read my job letters. Is this what a job letter looks like? I remember asking him, what is it supposed to look like? How do you write a job letter? They don't teach you that. They didn't teach me that in graduate school. I asked him, what do I wear when you go to a job interview? Like, what are you supposed to wear? Do I wear a tie? Do I not wear a tie? Do I wear a jacket? Can I wear sneakers? And so he was, my brother has always been and continues to this day to be something like an advisor to me too, a mentor. You know, getting that support from lots of people made it possible. And it also made it possible in times of doubt too. Sometimes you're not sure if you're doing the right thing and just having people there to kind of give you some perspective. The last person I mentioned that was absolutely critical to supporting me and, and especially towards the, the second half of my journey being in graduate school was my girlfriend at the time, who is now my wife. I mean, there were lots of ways she supported me. I had a grant to work, to do my dissertation field work in India. So I got some money that was going to pay for my ticket, pay for me to live there while I did my, my research. And for whatever reason, there was a, a big delay in getting the visa, the research visa from the Indian government. And it took about nine months for them to reject it for unclear reasons. And then I had to reapply and it took me them another six months. So there was a period where I was thinking, gosh, maybe I should just drop out of grad school, what I'm doing. But partly what was conditioning that was that I had spent all my money in my bank account, you know, as a graduate student, those times we weren't particularly well-funded and I had no money in my bank account. And I did that thinking that I was going to be in India and have, have this scholarship that it was going to keep me going for about a year and a half, two years or whatever. And I had no apartment. All my stuff was moved into storage. I had no money. And my girlfriend at the time, I moved in with her. And I think just having her with me and having her as somebody I can always talk to about my work and getting that emotional support, and in this case, also financial support, it got me through what otherwise would have been a really hard time where I could have gone some other direction. Maybe I would have dropped out and gone and done something else. But I stuck with it, and, and I'm glad I did because then I eventually I did get to India and I was able to do my research. So, you know, when you're doing this kind of stuff, it's never just you. You have your classmates, you have your mentors, your professors family, your friends. And they say, you know, it takes a village to, to raise a child, but it also takes a village maybe to raise a PhD or at least a finish one in this case. So Costas, tell me about your least favorite aspects of this job. What's least fun for you about being a professor? I think, you know, there's an image that people have of what it is to be a professor. There's an image people have who are not in academia. There's an image that students have, of course, of what it is to be a professor. There's an image of what graduate students have, of what it, what it might be to be a professor or what their future might be like. And then there's the experience you have of being an academic and a professor. And, you know, one of the ideas that people have of being a professor is that you teach and then you're on vacation the rest of the time or something like that. And, they, you know, certainly that's not my experience at all. You know, the components of the job are um, research and writing, teaching. And then service to the university, making the university run. And so teaching is like a really small part of what we do. And my job is a, maybe it's my personality, but I work six, seven days a week, seven to 10 hours a day, all year. Uh, in my summers, I'm doing research, preparing for my classes, which is not to say that the only thing that I do is work, but to say that 
it's a job that it's a vocation for me. It's something that I've chosen to do with my life. It's not just something that I should work. And that has lots of different components. It could be research, it could be writing, it could be reading, it could be teaching, it could be advising, it could be going to university meetings. The reason why I say that is that that's one kind of image that people have of what it is to be a professor. And then when you're a graduate student, you have this other idea, which is that your life is somehow going to be mainly just research and teaching, right? So for, from the outside, people often see professors that people just teach. And as a student, that's how you encounter your professors, is people who teach you. You don't see the rest of what they do. And as a graduate student, because you're training to become a researcher, among other things, as well as a teacher, what you see and what you expect for your career is to be a teacher and a researcher. And that's what you're trained for. And then when you actually become a professor, what you realize is that a third, and sometimes it, it expands to being more like a half maybe of what you actually do is bureaucratic in nature. It's going to meetings. It's reading memos written by other professors about the university having to do with policies of various kinds. It's writing memos. It's serving on committees to decide policy or committees to hire somebody. There's all these things that nobody ever trained you on how to do or even to expect them. And that's a huge part of the job is running a university, which falls onto, among other people, onto the backs or the shoulders of the faculty. So I would say that the hardest part of the job, in some ways, at least certainly at the beginning, for me, were all the things I didn't expect I was going to be doing necessarily. And I wasn't particularly trained to do them either, which is doing that service work for the university. I think some of those tasks I actually like very much. Some of them I don't as much. The hardest part or the, the part that, that I wish I could somehow get done more quickly is, is the paperwork. Whereas what I want to be doing with my time is interacting with other people who are trying to exert their faculties of creativity and thought to their maximum. And sometimes you get to do that when you're doing administrative work. But sometimes administrative work is red tape and paperwork and things like that. Those are the aspects of the job that are not always as rewarding as other parts of it. So on the flip side of that, Costas, what is the most gratifying or fulfilling part of being a professor? There's not one, you know, there's so many of them. And there are different ones that I've appreciated at different points in my career. I think the primary one for me is, is the joy of learning and discovering and of thinking. It's related to that, because that always happens in a kind of a communicative matrix, in a community, is the dialogue and the debate and the discussion through which ideas, discoveries, and learning are generated. That's one of the things that, for me, makes the job worthwhile. A, a second part of that is how that happens also in the classroom and being able to pay it forward and trying my best to inspire students in the way that I felt inspired and challenged and to give them both what I got, but also things that I, I wish I had gotten. And for me, that's the kind of intellectual engagement, critique, discussion, and challenge, and really being treated as not an equal, but as, as a peer, as someone to think with. And those moments that when that happened, when I was a student, I remember I really responded to positive. So I try to provide that for my students and to try to give them lots of feedback and to really listen to what they're saying, the papers they're writing or what they're saying in class and, and trying to give it my all and responding to it in a way that will be challenging and exciting for them. 
So a third joy that comes out of doing this kind of job for me that I've appreciated more as I've been in the field more is having the sense that you can make a difference in your local community. And by that, I mean, I strive to try to make my department, my subfield, my university, my division, my university, and the wider field of anthropology in which I work in, to try to push it forward in some way, to try to make it better than how I found it. And one of the ways, just linking back to what I was saying before about teaching, you know, one of the joys is that at a place like Chicago, I'm not just teaching students, but I'm also participating in the development of future colleagues and future peers. I'm humbled by that, that I have that responsibility, but I also take a real pride that in my students, when I see the amazing stuff that they go on to do. And it's something I've come to appreciate later because of course, it's only over time that you see how students develop and you see what they become where they start making their own advances, where they start creating their own traditions and their own communities. And you get to participate in that in a, in a way that, that you don't realize until you've been teaching for a certain amount of time. And I haven't even been teaching for very long. So sometimes I look at some of my colleagues who've been teaching 40 or 50 years and you realize that, you know, they've built a whole world around them. And it's a world of friends and who are like kin, but they're also fellow like-minded people who are pursuing different goals and agendas, but that are linked to each other in some way. It's an amazing thing to see a body of knowledge manifested as a community of scholars and other people. So I think that's something that I've come to realize is perhaps unique, or at least academia has fulfilled that kind of unique space and provided an experience that I didn't even know was there. Thank you, Professor Costas Nicasas, for your time today. And course takers, if you enjoyed listening to today's interview, please check out the other ones. Leave us a comment, subscribe, follow, and share this episode with your family and friends. You can find out more about the University of Chicago through uchicago.edu or the university's campus in Hong Kong through uchicago.hk. Stay tuned for more, and thanks for listening. 